Hey, this is Jason Hansen. I'm the lead pastor at Anchor Church. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I hope that as you listen, you're encouraged in your walk with Jesus to live for him, to tell others about him. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you're encouraged. Now, this morning, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. So where we're going to be this morning is we take a break from our series in Ephesians to celebrate Palm Sunday. And we're going to do something this morning uh, a little bit different. And and throughout the book of Ephesians, you've noticed that we've taken really small chunks, maybe three verses or six verses. We're going to do the complete opposite today. We're going to take five chapters of Matthew and take a 20,000 foot view as we kind of look over these events in Holy Week from uh, Palm Sunday on through, not through the whole week, but through much of the week. And so I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, follow along, because we're going to be kind of flying over these chapters and just dropping in at different points. Follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we like the YouVersion app. You can download it on your device quickly from the, the app store. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, run there, grab that app real quick. And then the, the version of the Bible that we typically use is the English Standard Version. So you can follow along with what we're reading from the Bible. So Matthew 21 this morning is where we will begin. Have you ever found yourself in life asking the question, how did I get here? Or, or maybe with, within your family unit or, or within some sort of a work context with a group of people, you say, how did we get here? What happened? How did I get here? Things were going great. Now they're terrible. How did I get here? Now, some of you know this, but in my uh, full-time job, I work as a supervisor in a distribution center. And one of the things that we have to do when people have accidents Uh, which we had one this week, someone hit some racking. When we have accidents, we have to do what's called a root cause investigation. A root cause investigation where we go in and we're, we're asking not just what happened, someone hit something, someone hurt themselves, someone hurt someone else. We're not just looking at what happened, but how. How did it happen? What led up to this event? Was it distraction? Was it lack of training? Uh, Was it equipment failure? What, how did we get here to where Equipment is broken, people are broken, whatever it may be. We do this root cause investigation. And and actually, you've probably done this in your life too. If you've ever been in a car accident, that's what the police officers did in your car accident. They they didn't just say, okay, one car hit another, great, we're done for the day. No, they're going to go and say, well, why? What happened? How did we get here? Were you on your cell phone? Were you speeding? Did you break a law? Was there failure in your vehicle? What is it? If you've ever had struggles in your marriages, for those who are married, you've probably done a root cause investigation. You've asked, how did we get here? You look back and you say, when we got married, it was the greatest day of our life. Here we are 15 years later, whatever it is, and we hate each other or we can't stand each other, whatever it is. How did we get here? What what happened? What went wrong? We all have these moments in our lives, right, where things go from being amazing, great, everything's working as it should, and all of a sudden, somehow, things are flipped on their head, things are terrible, and you go, wait, how how did we get here? What happened? Well, that's actually the story of Jesus as he makes his last trip into Jerusalem. He enters in to the song that we just sang, essentially, Hosanna, praise the Lord, there's a literal parade, we'll read it for him. That's how he enters into Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, he is crucified, he's abandoned, he's killed. And what we're going to do this morning is kind of a root cause investigation of sorts. We're going to ask, how did we get here? How did we get from Palm Sunday to
to what's known as Good Friday with Jesus on a cross. And one of the things that's really important in a root cause investigation is eyewitnesses. You say, who saw this? Who saw this person crash this vehicle? Because I want to figure out what they know. What did they see? What did they hear? What was the context? And we have an eyewitness in the Bible. His name is Matthew. And we're going to go to this eyewitness for our root cause investigation this morning. And what we're going to find, our big idea this morning, is that the King of Palm Sunday calls you to the cross of Good Friday. The, the King of Palm Sunday, the one we're celebrating this morning, calls you and I to the cross of Good Friday. We'll talk about more about what that means for us, how we live that out. But first, let's read Matthew 21, 1 through 11. And then we're going to read Matthew 26, 1 through 4, and we're going to see the change in circumstances. This is God's word to us this morning. Matthew 21, verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he, being Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the parade as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Turn with me to Matthew 26. A few short days later, this is what we find in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, we'll talk about what these sayings are. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. He entered Jerusalem to a parade, and here we have, just a few short days later, this plot hatched to kill him, and kill him they would. How did we get here? What, what happened? How did we get to this point in the story? Well, I'm going to spoil it for you on the front side, and then we'll see how it plays out. This is what happens here. This is why we got here. The why is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem with a plan to cast down the king of this world. You know, the king that's, that's talked about in the book of Ephesians chapter six, we'll get there in our We Are series. This, the ruler of the princes of the power of darkness. This, this authority in the heavenly places, this spiritual evil that's at work in men and women's hearts, that king of this world, that's a, a lowercase k king, Jesus comes in to cast down that king as he ushers in his kingdom. So there's a reality that that king, the king of this world, the, the, the prince of the power of darkness, would actually love for Jesus to enter into shouts of Hosanna and for things to end right there. 
for Jesus to take his place in some sort of role with the, the priest of the, of the time, being a religious leader, and that's kind of the, the end of it. He would love that. In fact, he offered that to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. But Jesus came for so much more. He actually came in to cast down that king, to establish his kingdom. We're going to see how he does that. He does that by addressing two different groups of people. And, and who they are, actually, I think, should grab our attention. Think about this. As Jesus is coming in to cast down the king of this world, the prince of the power of darkness, Satan, where would you expect him to go? Maybe to the king's palace? He's going to go to Caesar and say, listen, man, things need to change. Maybe to the governor's mansion? Where is he going to go? Look with me at Matthew 21. Verse 12, the next verse after we read Jesus coming into a parade, and Jesus entered the temple. Jesus entered the temple. Jesus goes to the temple, and he's going to start casting down the king of this world by challenging the people of God. He goes right to the temple and goes right at the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the people. That should grab our attention. That means something for us. So Jesus, he goes in and the first thing he does in Jerusalem, he enters the temple and he cleanses it, it says. Because in the, the court where the Gentiles could come, the non-Jewish people could come and worship God, money changers and, and, and hawkers of, of animals have set up shop to try and make, make a business there for people who need to offer sacrifices. And so Jesus comes and you've probably heard the story even if you haven't been around the church and he makes a whip of cords and he drives them out. And he says, my father's house, you're turning it into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations, and you are turning it into a den of robbers. He drives them out. And then the next day, as you continue on in Matthew 21, he curses a fig tree with really great imagery here, where he's coming up to the temple, and he sees a fig tree in full bloom, leaves. It's a beautiful tree, and from far off, you would expect there is some fruit ready on this tree. And Jesus shows up, and what does he find? leaves. Yeah, nothing. And he curses it, and it withers, and it dies. And it's an image of the people of God. They have this beautiful temple, but inside it's a den of robbers. They have this beautiful religious system with no fruits. What does Jesus do? He curses it. He's casting down the ruler of this world by calling out the hypocrisy in the, God, in the people of God. It's where he starts. And then he goes on to tell these parables. There's a couple of parables that kind of center around a vineyard. One is of two sons that a father sends to tend to the vineyards. And one of the sons says, no, I'm not going to go do that. But he ultimately ends up going and doing it. The other one, worse, says, yeah, I'll go, dad. But he never shows up. The people of God are that second son, is what Jesus is drawing out. In this moment, he tells of another parable, which a parable, if you haven't been around the Bible, uh, a parable is just an illustration to make a point. He tells another parable of, of a vineyard, and, and a, a king or a ruler of that vineyard hires some tenants to, to come in and, and, and take care of it. And then he sends his servants to reap a harvest from that vineyard, and the tenants kill the servants. The, the ruler of the vineyard even sends his own son, and the tenants kill the son. We've got some foreshadowing going on here. And what is Jesus doing? Drop in with me at Matthew 21, verse 31. This is kind of the summation of these parables that he's giving to them. And this is harsh. He says, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
Oh, Jesus is challenging the people of God here. He comes into Jerusalem with fire on his lips. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors that you hate and despise and the prostitutes that you look down upon and cast out, they go into the kingdom of God before you. And this has the rulers of the people of God in a little bit of a, an uncomfortable spot, right? You can imagine. We see in verse 45 of chapter 21 that when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Wow, they're brilliant. Oh, he's speaking about us. Well, this is uncomfortable. It says, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, because they, the crowds, held them to be a prophet. So at this point in our story, Jesus has come in, he's challenged the people of God for their hypocrisy, and the rulers of the people, they just want to arrest Jesus. They want to shut him up. They want to silence him. But at this point in the story, it's only arrest that they're talking about. They haven't gotten to the point of murder. They just want to arrest him. They want to silence him. They want to stop this uh, rhetoric that he's spewing about them. They don't like it. It makes them uncomfortable. And Jesus doesn't take his foot off the pedal. He goes on. He tells another parable of a wedding feast with the same theme. You were invited into God's kingdom. You've rejected it. Others are going to be brought in, people of God. He's challenging them here in this moment. And then... All of this culminates in these challenges that then begin to happen, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are the religious kind of rulers of the time, they're challenging Jesus on different topics. And the Herodians get involved. You see this in chapter 22, that the Herodians, who are, these are a political group. They're not religious. They're a political group that want to support Herod. Okay, they get involved in, in challenging Jesus because they see the threat to them as well. They see the threat to their power. And so they're challenging Jesus. And it's interesting here, you got the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together to challenge Jesus. The religious leaders, the political leaders getting together and they don't like this kingdom that's being ushered in by the king of Palm Sunday. So they challenge him. And Jesus' response in chapter 23 of Matthew I want to encourage you to read that sometime. The whole chapter is literally just a rebuke of the leaders of God's people. It's what's called the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. A, a woe is a way of saying a curse. So cursed are you. When he says woe to you, he's telling them cursed are you. You are cursed. And this is God saying it. So they literally are cursed. Why are they cursed? We'll drop in just to read a few of the woes. You can follow along in Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, or cursed are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may, be, may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which inwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Wow. <laughs> Jesus, probably in the temple courts, is saying this to the leader of God's people. He is bringing fire, isn't he? 
He's calling them hypocrites. He's saying you're cursed because you've got these religious structures that you've set up, but your heart is far from God. He says, listen, you've set up these religious structures where you give a tithe of mint and cumin, these these herbs and things, you give that tithe, but in reality, you are neglecting the weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You're not loving God or loving people, but you tithe, good job, you tithe, but you're, you're empty inside. In fact, he tells them you're like tombs, whitewashed. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead bones. He tells them, and get this imagery here, as he calls them full of greed and self-indulgence, he says in verse 24 that they strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. It's interesting language there. Essentially what he's saying is you, you'll, you'll make your wine and you'll use a strainer to take gnats out of it so that you can enjoy every last drop of that wine. You're frugal with your assets, but you also swallow a camel. You're consumers because you're selfish and full of greed. That should hit us as Americans, right? I'm going to take care of my, what I have, and I'm also going to consume whatever I can. Think about that imagery of swallowing a camel. So Jesus is challenging with here. He's saying you're full of greed. You're full of self-indulgence. What is going on here? As Jesus challenges the rulers of God's people here, as he's casting down the king of this world, he is showing us that the kingdom of God is substance over form. He said again, the kingdom of God is about substance over form. The kingdom of God is about a substantial relationship with the living God over a form of religion that makes you look righteous, but on the inside you're dead. And how is he exposing that? He goes right to the temple, right to the leader of God's people, and he draws it out. You are empty inside. You are dead. Your temple looks beautiful, but inside it's a den of robbers. Your lives look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're dead. You're selfish. Cursed are you. This is tough language from Jesus. He does it right in the temple, right to the leaders of the people of God. He's casting down the ruler of this world. And he's doing it by challenging the people of God because the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, has infiltrated the people of God. He, he's okay with the big temple as long as it's death inside. The same is true today. He's okay with a massive church that's beautiful and, and, and brings awe if it's dead inside. He's okay with that. Have a big church. It's fine. Have a big temple. Let it be beautiful. Be dead inside. He's happy. And Jesus is exposing that. He's saying, no, you are dead inside. The kingdom of God is about substance over form, not the other way around. And Jesus goes on. The second group of people that he's going to talk to is his followers. So he leaves the temple. He's making his way out of Jerusalem now. We see that he laments over Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23. He laments, he cries as he sees the, the place that the, king, that the people of God are in because of this brokenness, because of this hypocrisy. He's, he's torn over it. He's lamenting. And then he goes, and he goes up on uh, uh, the Mount of Olives. And what's known as the Olivet Discourse is what follows. And this is where his followers, his disciples, come after him. And they, they're asking him, what, what is going on, Jesus? What is happening here? And, and he starts his address to his followers by foretelling some things. The first is the destruction of the temple. 
They can see from the Mount of Olives, the temple is there. It's beautiful. It's probably looking glorious. Maybe the sun is setting on it and it's radiating. And Jesus tells them, yeah, every stone there is going to be cast down. That's going to be destroyed. And for us as Americans who aren't connected to that temple, it's easy for us to go, well, that sucks, but you know, whatever. For them, their whole life likely centered around this temple. Their vacations were spent going to this temple for feasts. That all of their religious duties were performed in this temple. They come here to worship God. So for Jesus to say, yeah, that's going to be cast down completely. Nothing's going to be left standing. Oh man, that would have been hard for them to hear, wouldn't it? It would have been challenging. I don't, we don't have an equivalent today, but I would imagine maybe as Americans, the closest thing would be if someone said, yeah, the White House torn down brick by brick. We'd go, whoa, that's tough. Think about when January 6th happened how difficult that was for us to see something like that. What if Jesus said, yeah, every brick torn down? That would hit us, and it hits his disciples where they're at. But he goes on. He actually doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning of it. That's the least scary part. He goes on, and he starts talking about the signs of the end of the age in Matthew 24. And in that, he's talking about persecutions. He's talking about wars. He's talking about famines and earthquakes. He's telling them that this is what's coming. You could say all hell is breaking loose. That's what you have to look forward to. And they're going to hate you because you follow me in the midst of all of that. There's going to be wars. There's going to be death and destruction and plague and famine. All of this. Why is Jesus doing that? Is he doing that to scare his followers into some sort of submission? No, he's actually doing the exact opposite. What Jesus is doing as he's foretelling this destruction of the temple and these end times will all, where all this craziness will happen, he's letting them in on that to dispel fear. Because as he's casting down the ruler of this world, he recognizes that the way that ruler rules is through fear. That ruler would love nothing more than for the people of God to live in fear, to be afraid. And so Jesus is, is actually dispelling that. He's saying, listen, this is what's going to come. But he's also preparing them. He says, in this, see that no one leads you astray. He says in chapter 24, verse 4. Don't let anyone lead you astray. Because all of these things are meant to take place. They're all within my hands, he's telling them. I've got this. I'm in control here. Don't be afraid. In fact, he says in verse six, uh, five, excuse me, um, uh, six, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that are, you are not alarmed. He's actually trying to dispel fear from them. Okay, listen, all this craziness is going to happen, but don't be afraid. Why? Well, because we find out in verse 14 of chapter 24, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. So because of all of this, the good news of Jesus is going to go forth in power. What's he saying? I'm in control. I'm in control. The good news will go forth. He he goes on to tell him in, in verse 30 that when all of this happens, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Talk about a triumphal entry, right? And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. What's he saying? He's saying, this is all gonna happen, all of this craziness. Don't be afraid, don't be alarmed. In fact, it means I'm coming. 
And when I come in my glory, in my power, I'm gonna gather you in. You'll be safe. You'll be okay. You'll be protected. Don't fear. God is in charge. That's what he's telling them. He's casting out fear as he's doing this. He's throwing down the prince of this world by casting out the fear in the people of God. Don't be afraid. I've got this. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on with more parables. Thank you, Jesus, for parables. They're helpful. He goes on with more parables, and these parables are are speaking to the readiness that he's calling his people to. Okay, so don't be afraid at all this craziness that's going to happen. Instead, be prepared. Be ready. He gives a a parable of of ten virgins, uh, some who are prepared for the bridegroom to come, five of them, five of uh, of whom aren't. And the five who aren't prepared have to go back into town. They miss out on the invitation to the wedding feast because they weren't prepared. They were apathetic. They didn't really care. Like, yeah, he'll come when he comes. No big deal. He gives a a parable of the talents, which I'm sure if you've been around the church, you've heard about this ruler giving uh, five talents to one guy, three to another, one to another. And what do they do with them? Some invest it. One guy buries his out of what? Fear right? Who's the one that gets cursed? The guy who's afraid. Jesus says, no, actually, I'm giving you these gifts, even as we've talked about in the book of Ephesians, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the goal of that for you in readiness is to advance the kingdom of God, to invest my presence with you in advancing the kingdom of God to the end of the age. Don't act out of fear. Be ready. Be prepared. Continue to push forward. I've got a plan here. And then this kind of discourse about end times ends with this story of sheep and goats. In Matthew 25, you can follow along with me beginning in verse 31. He says this. This is to his disciples again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, he's looking to an even greater triumphal entry, right? Not on a donkey into Jerusalem, but on a white horse to take the throne of this world. Before him, he will be gathered, uh, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. The right side is favor, the left side is not favor. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, You who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This is an interesting spot here. The, 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 the sheep respond, the, the, it says in verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Think about that. If, you're there, if I'm there, he goes, hey, you did this for me. And I'm going, no, I didn't. I'm not gonna say a word. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I can come in now, <laughs> right? Like, But no, they say, they're the righteous. They go, God, we didn't do that. We didn't do the things you're saying. In in verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus is instructing his followers here about when the king of this world will forever be cast down. And he's encouraging them to fearless 
readiness. Don't be afraid, be ready. I've got something for you to do right now. And what is it? Well, it's feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the the, the imprisoned. He tells them, I've got something for you right now. Be ready. What's he telling them? Is he's casting down the king of this world. What he's telling them and us now listening in to Matthew 25, thousands of years later, he's telling them that the kingdom of God is about peaceful readiness over fearful apathy. The kingdom of God is about peaceful readiness over fearful apathy. For those who follow Jesus, we can rest even in scary times in his control, in his power, in his love. And we can stay ready knowing that no matter how bad things get, he's got a job for us. He's got a plan for us. He's got something for us to do, which is love people selflessly. We don't need to fear. Fear is, is, is something that the king of this world uses to control even Christians. It's something that the king of this world uses to get Christians whipped up into different hysterias so that they would abandon the calling of loving the least of these. And we don't need to be apathetic. We don't need to go, well, whatever, it's all going to burn. Eh, God's going to come back. I don't need to do anything. It's fine. He's got a plan. No, he's encouraging us to readiness here. What's he doing? The king of, good, of, of Palm Sunday is calling them and you and I to the cross of Good Friday. He's pulling us right along. There's this cross of sacrifice. You're gonna see me do it for you and you're gonna go and do it for others. Because after these sayings, verse 20, or chapter 26, excuse me, we read this in the beginning. After Jesus said all of these sayings, it says in verse one, after he challenged the, the leaders of the people, after he challenged his disciples and encouraged them to what readiness and preparedness looks like, after all of this, the king of this world is ready to shut him up, to get him out of here. He doesn't like this language. You just want him to ride in on the donkey and live uh, controlled by the people. Jesus, live in fear of their opinion of you. Jesus, be, be controlled by the form of religion that they have minus the substance of relationship with God. Just do that and I'm fine with you. But Jesus refuses. And so what happens? Well, Jesus knows what will happen. 26 verse 2, he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest right there the place where God's people should be being uh, enriched and fulfilled. Now they gather there in, in Caiaphas's office and they plot together in order to arrest Jesus, the son of God, by stealth and kill him. That's how we got here. Jesus challenged the, the rulers of God's people for their hypocrisy and he encouraged his people to live a life of fearless readiness in devotion to God, in love of neighbor. And that was too much. The ruler of this world hatched a plot in the hearts of the, the rulers of the people of God to kill Jesus. But again, Jesus is in control, right? It was his plan first. He said it first in verse two, they're gonna crucify me. It's gonna happen. He knew when he came into Jerusalem, this is how it ends. It was his plan first. Why? Because in order for Jesus to make this new kingdom, of people devoted to God and loving one another, he must take away our sin. The only way to do that was on that cross of Good Friday. 
The only way to make a new people in the image of God restored was for Jesus to bear your sins and my sins on the cross. And when I say sins, it's simply this idea of trying to build your own kingdom against the kingdom of God. The the sins of the Pharisees, what is it? Their their, Their religious devotion is high. What is their sin? They're building their own kingdom. They don't want God's kingdom. They don't want selflessness. No, they want to strain out the gnat and swallow the camel, right? That's what sin is. It's building your own kingdom over and against God's kingdom. And Jesus came and he bore the cross of Good Friday so that all who trust in him could be made new creations and invited into this kingdom of God to live this life, not of hypocrisy, but of substance, To live this life, not of fear and apathy, but of peace and readiness, loving God and loving people. Jesus bore the cross for you and for me so that we could be invited into this kingdom, so that he could usher in this kingdom that was so much greater than the throne that he would have sat on in Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday. The king of Palm Sunday, he's calling you and I to the cross of Good Friday. So how do we live in light of this? What does this mean for us? Another way we could ask that is, how has he called us to the cross of Good Friday? Two ways I have for you. The first is to have ears to hear the king's words. How has Jesus called you to the cross of Good Friday? He's called you to have ears to hear the king's words. What do I mean by that? Well, everyone in this passage, in this, these, these chapters from 21 to 26, they heard challenging things from Jesus. They heard difficult things. They were hit in the heart. Some of them with, you are cursed. Some of them with, listen, life as you know it is going to be flipped upside down. They were all hit with these challenging words of Jesus. The question is, how do you respond? How do you respond? Do you respond like the Pharisees and say, oh, I just got to shut him up? Oh, arrest him, silence him. I don't want the challenge. Or do you respond like the disciples? It's not captured here, but in John 6, Jesus gives a sermon that's really difficult. Same thing, it's challenging. And the Pharisees hate it. They're scornful towards him. Many of his followers, it says, turn away. They go, this is too hard for us. We, we can't hear this. We don't want to do this. But his disciples, he turns to them and he says, what are you going to do? Are you going to abandon me too? And they say this. They say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I imagine here in the Olivet Discourse, the same thing happened. As they hear of these tough times, as they hear of this radical life of sacrifice to love others, they're sitting there going, wow, this is hard. But to whom shall we go? Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And church, this is important for us because we talk about being purposefully biblical. And it's important that we get both of those words in our understanding. You see, the Pharisees were biblical. The Pharisees were orthodox. The Pharisees memorized the scriptures as they had them. They knew them. They taught them. Jesus actually tells the people, listen to their teaching. Just don't act like they do. They know the Bible. They were biblical. The problem is they weren't purposefully biblical. They weren't willing to say, oh man, God is challenging me on my sin. I need to respond to that challenge and follow him and change my life. To be purposefully biblical, we have to hear the challenges of Jesus and have the response of the disciples, well, Lord, to who else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. What do you want from me? What do I need to give up? Who do I need to serve? Who do I need to love? 
I am yours. Are we going to do that? Or are we going to plug our ears like the Pharisees and plot to remove him? So when you do a root cause investigation, one of the kind of final summations you want to have is, okay, what do we need to change? What do we need to correct to prevent further accidents? And church, every time we pick up our Bible, the word of God, we should be doing that same thing in our hearts. What needs to change about me as a result of the words of the king here so that I I can prevent further running away from him, further denying his glory, further hurting my neighbor? What needs to change? Show me, Jesus. I don't want you to shut up. I want you to challenge me. I want to hear the, have ears to hear the words of the king. And secondly, we want to have our cross on our shoulder. Jesus calls you to the cross of Good Friday. He's calling you to bear your own cross. Have your cross on your shoulder. As Jesus is telling them about how to prepare for the day, the final judgment in Matthew 25, and he lays out to the sheep, this is what you've done. What he's telling them is this is how you are to prepare for that final day. This is how you are to live. And what he's telling them is pick up your cross and follow me. In the same way that on Friday, I'm going to be betrayed and given over for you, you pick up your cross and do the same thing for others, for the least of these. He's telling them, pick up your cross, follow me. It's how you prepare. It's how you live right now as a kingdom citizen now. You could say he's telling them to be joyfully generous. But this explodes our understanding of joyfully generous, right? This is tough. You know, the world would tell you, store up food. Famine's coming, store up food. Jesus says, feed the hungry. Give to the thirsty. The world would tell you, hard times are coming. Build your storehouse, your necessities. We saw that, right? Hoard the toilet paper. (laughs) Bring it all in. Keep it. What does Jesus say? Clothe the naked. Do the opposite. I mean, the world will tell us, build high walls. Keep the stranger out. Build those walls. Jesus says, you welcome the stranger. The world will tell you, keep yourself safe. Avoid people who are broken, who are dangerous, who are sick. Jesus says, go and visit the imprisoned Go and be with the sick. What is he telling us? He's telling us to carry our cross on our shoulder. To be joyfully generous in ways that hurt. In ways that we're not swallowing the camel. No, we're straining out the gnat for others. Saying, what, do I, what can I give to you? In the middle of all this discourse, we didn't even touch on it because we've talked about it a lot this year, but in the middle of it in Matthew 22 is this whole discussion of the greatest commandment. And you know what it is. You have it on your wristband, right? To love God, love people. That's what Jesus is calling them to do here. He's saying, listen, look at the cross of Good Friday. Throw your trust on me for the remission of your sin, for the salvation of your soul so that you can be invited into the kingdom. But don't stay there and stare at the cross. Pick up your cross and follow me. Love people. That's what Jesus is calling them to. That's what he's calling us to today. Because the King of Palm Sunday that we celebrate today, he's calling you and I to the cross of Good Friday. I want to invite the band up as we prepare to close. We'll take communion in just a moment as well. Church, we want to be a people who have a substantial relationship with God. A people that don't trade the form of religion 
for a substantive relationship with God. No, we say, I want Jesus. I want him. I don't just want to play the religious game, the church game. No, I want Jesus. Church, we want to be a people who aren't operating out of fear, who aren't just drifting along in apathy, but no, who are resting in the goodness of God and are ready for the kingdom of God. We are loving others radically. And if we're doing that, how much more might the kingdom of God go forward here in Gilbert, in us and among us and from us, all of those people that we've been encouraging you to invite, what they need to experience when they come is the kingdom of God at work in you and at work in me. That's what they need. It's what we need, right? The only way that's gonna happen is if we have ears to hear. If we have ears to hear, if we're allowing ourselves to be challenged by the word of God daily, God, change me, shape me, show me. And if we're picking up our cross and we're following him. We're gonna take communion this morning as we do every Sunday. And I wanna just kind of instruct you on this. When, as we think about communion, Jesus in, in Matthew 26, uh, on the night that he was betrayed, instituted this idea of the Lord's Supper of communion. He took bread and he broke it, it says in Matthew 26. He blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take this, eat it. It's my body broken for you. So he's reminding them this sacrifice is for you. Gave them the cup, the wine was passed around the table. He said, drink of it. This is the blood of the covenant. This blood that's shed for you invites you into this covenant, this kingdom of God. Remember it and do this regularly. And when we take communion, what we want to do, I think about it as the three R's of communion. We want to remember, we want to reflect, and we want to repent. It's three R's of communion. We want to remember, this is what Jesus has done for me. His body was broken. His blood was spilled for me. And as a result, let me reflect on my own life and ask, am I loving God? Am I loving people as I ought, as he calls me to? And I can tell you right now, if the answer is yes, you are deceived. The answer is no, you aren't, and I'm not. And so lastly, we, we recognize those areas and we repent. Say, God, I'm turning from that, turning to you. This act of communion is remembering, reflecting, repenting. That's what we do this morning as we take communion. The band is gonna uh, play a song. It's gonna point us to the cross to remember what Jesus has done for us. As they do so, please reflect on who Jesus is what he is, who he is to you, and take that some time to repent as well, to have ears to hear, to take up that cross even today. And then Julie will call us to stand. Take communion on your own when you're ready. Julie will call us to stand and we'll sing one more song after that. So go ahead and sing as you sit there. Remember, reflect, repent. Repent.